The Magic Mountain, a novel written by the great Thomas Mann in the year 1924, is beloved for many reasons, perhaps none more for its elusiveness, its originality, and its style. Indeed, many a reader enjoys the ambiguity in which the work will surely shroud her, and the disquiet with which its final chapter will close. The symbolism, if you seek it, is profound and omnipresent. The realism, incapable of being ignored, is both eloquent and faithful to that which it depicts. In this, a reading of the Nobel Prize-winning book's first chapter, we accompany the young protagonist, Hans Kastorp, in his initial ascent to the peaks of the Magic Mountain that wintry elevation at which he plans to spend, at most, a few pleasant weeks. Undoubtedly, given the many commitments to which he must return, he'll not countenance a longer stay than this. Though orphaned as a child, and subjected repeatedly to the pains of misfortune and personal loss. It can't be said of Hans that he was born wholly without privilege. Deprived of his parents, he fell under the care of an aristocratic uncle, a wealthy man by whom his every whim was indulged. He lived a life of comfort and ease, a mode of being for which the bourgeoisie, that urbane segment of society of which he was a member, would stand to offer its most heartfelt applause. Now, at the threshold of gaining his autonomy and establishing himself in European life, we join our pampered, youthful adventurer as he leaves behind the flatlands of the continent below in search of an altitude about which the air is more thinly draped. We join him with curiosity and delight as his train climbs its way to the misty alpine heights, the great magic mountain in which he's soon to be engulfed. The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann
an unassuming young man was traveling in midsummer from his native city of Hamburg to Davos, Platz, and the canton of the Grisons on a three weeks visit. From Hamburg to Davos is a long journey, too long, indeed, for so brief a stay. It crosses all sorts of country, goes uphill and down dale, descends from the plateau of southern Germany to the shore of Lake Constance, over its bounding waves and on across marshes once thought to be bottomless. At this point, the route, which has been so far over trunk lines, gets cut up. There are stops and formalities. In Rorsach, in Swiss territory, you take train again, but only as far as Lanquart, a small alpine station where you have to change. Here, here, after a long and windy wait in a spot devoid of charm, you mount a narrow-gauge train, and as the small but very powerful engine gets underway, there begins the thrilling part of the journey, a steep and steady climb that seems never to come to an end. For the station of Lanquart lies at a relatively low altitude. But now the wild and rocky route pushes grimly onward into the Alps themselves. Hans Castorp such was the young man's name, sat alone in his little gray upholstered compartment with his alligator-skin handbag, a present from his uncle and guardian, Council Tienapel. Let us get the introductions over with at once. His traveling rug and his winter overcoat swinging on its hook. The window was down. The afternoon grew cool. And he, a tender product of the sheltered life, had turned up the collar of his fashionably cut, silk-lined summer overcoat. Near him on the seat lay a paper-bound volume entitled Ocean steamships. Earlier in the journey he had studied it off and on, but now it lay neglected, and the breath of the panting engine streaming in defiled its cover with particles of soot. Two days 
travel separated the youth. He was still too young to have thrust his roots down firmly into life. From his own world. From all that he thought of as his own duties, interests, cares, and prospects. Far more than he had dreamed it would when he sat in the carriage on the way to the station. Space, rolling and revolving between him and his native heath, possessed and wielded the powers we generally ascribe to time. From hour to hour it worked changes in him, like to those wrought by time yet in a way even more striking. Space, like time, engenders forgetfulness. But it does so by setting us bodily free from our surroundings and giving us back our primitive, unattached state. Yes, it can even, in the twinkling of an eye, make something like a vagabond of the pedant and philistine. Time, we say, is leith. But change of air is a similar draught, and, if it works less thoroughly, does so more quickly. Such was the experience of young Hans Kastorp. He had not meant to take the journey seriously or commit himself deeply to it, but to get it over quickly, since it had to be made to return as he had gone, and to take up his life at the point where, for the moment, he had had to lay it down. Only yesterday he had been encompassed in the wanted circle of his thoughts, and entirely taken up by two matters. The examination he had just passed, and his approaching entrance into the firm of Thunder and Wilms, shipbuilders, smelters, and machinists. With as much impatience as lay in his temperament to feel, he had discounted the next three weeks. But now it began to seem as though present circumstances required his entire attention, that it would not be at all the thing to take them too lightly. This being carried upward into regions where he had never before drawn breath, 
and where he knew that unusual living conditions prevailed, such as could only be described as sparse or scanty. It began to work upon him, to fill him with a certain concern. Home and regular living lay not only far behind, they lay fathoms deep beneath him, and he continued to mount above them. Poised between them and the unknown, he asked himself how he was going to fare. Perhaps it had been ill-advised of him, born as he was a few feet above sea level, to come immediately to these great heights, without stopping at least a day or so at some point in between. He wished he were at the end of his journey. For once there, he could begin to live as he would anywhere else, and not be reminded by this continual climbing of the incongruous situation he found himself in. He looked out. The train wound and curves along the narrow pass. He could see the front carriages and the laboring engine vomiting great masses of brown, black, and greenish smoke that floated away. Water roared in the abysses on the right. On the left, among rocks, dark fir trees aspired toward a stone-gray sky. The train passed through pitch-black tunnels, and when daylight came again it showed wide chasms, with villages nestled in their depths. Then the pass closed again. They wound along narrow defiles with traces of snow in chinks and crannies. There were halts at wretched little shanties of stations, also at more important ones, which the train left in the opposite direction, making one lose the points of the compass. A magnificent succession of vistas opened before the odd eye of the solemn phantasmagorical world of towering peaks into which their root wove and wormed itself. Vistas that appeared and disappeared with each new winding of the path. Hans Kostorp reflected that they must have got above the zone of shade trees, also probably of songbirds whereupon he felt such a sense of the impoverishment of life as gave him a slight attack of giddiness and nausea and made him put his hand over his eyes for a few seconds. It passed. He perceived that they had stopped 
climbing. The top of the call was reached. The train rolled smoothly along the level valley floor. It was about eight o'clock and still daylight. A lake was visible in the distant landscape, its waters gray, its shores covered with black fir forests that climbed the surrounding heights, thinned out, and gave place to bare mist-wreathed rock. They stopped at a small station. Hans Kastorp heard the name called out. It was Davos Dorf. Soon he would be at his journey's end. And suddenly, close to him, he heard a voice, the comfortable Hamburg voice of his cousin, Joachim Zimson, saying, Hello, there you are. Here's where you get out and peering through the window saw his cousin himself standing below on the platform in a brown ulster, bareheaded, and looking more robust than ever in his life before. He laughed and said again, Come along out, it's all right. But I'm not there yet, said Hans Kastorp taken aback, and still seated. Oh, yes, you are. This is the village. It is near to the sanatorium from here. I have a carriage. Just give us your things. And laughing, confused, in the excitement of arrival and meeting, Hans Kastorp reached bag, overcoat, the roll with stick and umbrella, and finally ocean steamships out of the window. Then he ran down the narrow corridor and sprang out upon the platform to greet his cousin properly. The meeting took place without exuberance as between people of traditional coolness and reserve. Strange to say, the cousins had always avoided calling each other by their first names, simply because they were afraid of showing too much feeling. And, as they could not well address each other by their last names, they confined themselves by established custom to the thou. A man in livery with a braided cap looked on while they shook hands quickly, not without embarrassment. Young Zimson in military position, heels together. Then he came forward to ask for Hans Kostorp's luggage ticket. He was the concierge of the International Sanatorium Burghof, 
and would fetch the guest's large trunk from the other station while the gentleman drove directly up to supper. This man limped noticeably, and so, curiously enough, the first thing Hans Kastorp said to his cousin was, Is that a war veteran? What makes him limp like that? War veteran? No fear, said Joachim with some bitterness. He's got it in his knee, or rather, he had it. The knee pan has been removed. Hans Kastorp bethought himself hastily. So that's it, he said, and as he walked on, turned his head and gave a quick glance back. But you can't make me believe you've still got anything like that the matter with you. Why? You look as if you had just come from maneuvers. And he looked sidelong at his cousin. Joachim was taller and broader than he, a picture of youthful vigor, and made for a uniform. He was of the very dark type, which is blonde-peopled country, not seldom produces. And his already nut-brown skin was tanned, almost to bronze. With his large black eyes and small dark mustache over the full well-shaped mouth, he would have been distinctly handsome if his ears had not stood out. Up to a certain period, they had been his only trouble in life. Now, however, he had others. Hans Kostorp went on. You're coming back down with me, aren't you? I see no reason why not. Back down with you, asked his cousin, and turned his large eyes full upon him. They had always been gentle, but in these five months they had taken on a tired, almost sad expression. When? Why? In three weeks. Oh, yes. You are already on the way back home, in your thoughts, answered Joachim. Wait a bit. You've only just come. Three weeks are nothing at all to us up here. They look like a lot of time to you, because you are only up here on a visit, and three weeks is all you have. Get acclimatized first. It isn't so easy, you'll see. And the climate isn't the only queer thing about us. You're going to see some things you've never dreamed of. Just wait. 
about me. It isn't such smooth sailing as you think. You with your going home in three weeks. That's the class of ideas you have down below. I am brown, I know. But it is mostly snow booming. It doesn't mean much. As Behrens always says, he told me at the last regular examination it would take another half year, pretty certainly. Half a year? Are you crazy? shouted Hans Kastorp. They'd climbed into the yellow cabriolet that stood in the stone-paved square in front of the shed-like station. And as the pair of brown horses started up, he flounced indignantly on the hard cushions. Half a year? You've been up here half a year already. Who's got so much time to spend? Oh, time, said Joachim, and nodded repeatedly, straight in front of him, paying his cousin's honest indignation no heed. They make pretty free with a human being's idea of time, up here. You wouldn't believe it. Three weeks are just like a day to them. You'll learn all about it, he said, and added. One's ideas get changed. Hans Kastorp regarded him earnestly as they drove. But seems to me you've made a splendid recovery, he said, shaking his head. You really think so, don't you? answered Joachim. I think I have too. He drew himself up straighter against the cushions, but immediately relaxed again. Yes, I am better he explained. But I'm not cured yet. In the left lobe, where there were rails, it only sounds harsh now, and that is not so bad. But lower down, it is still very harsh. And there are ronchi in the second intercostal space. How learned you've got, said Hans Kastorp. Fine sort of learning. God knows I wish I'd had it sweated out of my system in the service, responded Joachim. But I still have sputum, he said, with a shoulder shrug that was somewhat indifferent and vehement both at once, and became him but ill. He half pulled out and showed to his cousin something he carried in the side pocket of his overcoat, next to Hans Kastorp. It was a flat, curving bottle of bluish glass with a metal cap. Most of us up here carry it, he said, shoving it back. It even has a nickname. They make quite a joke of it. 
You are looking at the landscape. Hans Gastorp was. Magnificent, he said. Think so? asked Joachim. They had driven for a space straight up the axis of the valley, along an irregularly built street that followed the line of the railway. Then, turning to the left, they crossed the narrow tracks and watercourse, and now trotted up a high road that mounted gently toward the wooded slopes. Before them rose a low, projecting, meadow-like plateau, on which, facing southwest, stood a long building with a cupola and so many balconies that from a distance it looked porous, like a sponge. In this building, lights were beginning to show. It was rapidly growing dusk. The faint rose color that had briefly enlivened the overcast heavens was faded now, and there reigned the colorless, soulless, melancholy transition period that comes just before the onset of night. The populous valley, extended and rather winding, now began to show lights everywhere, not only in the middle, but here and there on the slopes at either hand, particularly on the projecting right side, upon which buildings mounted in terrace formation. Paths ran up the sloping meadows to the left and lost themselves in the vague blackness of the pine forest. Behind them, where the valley narrowed to its entrance, the more distant ranges showed a cold, slaty blue. A wind had sprung up and made perceptible the chill of the evening. No, to speak frankly, I don't find it so overpowering, said Hans Kastorp. Where are the glaciers and the snow peaks and the gigantic heights you hear about? These things aren't very high, it seems to me. Oh, yes, they are, answered Joachim. You can see the tree line almost everywhere. It is very sharply defined. The fir trees leave off, and after that there is absolutely nothing but bare rock. And up there, to the right of the Schwarzhorn, that tooth-shaped peak, there is a glacier. Can't you see the blue? It is not very large. But it is a glacier right enough, the Skeleta, Pies Michel and Tinzenhorn in the notch. You can't see them from here, have snow all the year round. Eternal snow, 
said Hans Gastorp. Eternal snow, if you like. Yes, that's all very high. But we are frightfully high ourselves. Sixteen hundred meters above sea level. That's why the peaks don't seem any higher. Yes. What a climb that was. I was scared to death. I can tell you. Sixteen hundred meters. That is over five thousand feet, as I reckon it. I've never been so high up in my life. And Hans Gastorp took in a deep, experimental breath of the strange air. It was fresh, and that was all. It had no perfume, no content, no humidity. It breathed in easily and held for him no associations. Wonderful air, he remarked politely. Yes, the atmosphere is famous, but the place doesn't look its best tonight. Sometimes it makes a much better impression, especially when there is snow. But you can get sick of looking at it. All of us up here are frightfully fed up, you can imagine, said Joachim, and twisted his mouth into an expression of disgust that was as unlike him as the shoulder shrug. It looked irritable, disproportionate. You've such a queer way of talking, said Hans Kostorp. Have I? said Joachim, concerned, and turned to look at his cousin. Oh, no. Of course I don't mean you really have. I suppose it just seems so to me for the moment, Hans Kostorp hastened to assure him. It was the expression, all of us up here, which Joachim had used several times, that had somehow struck him as strange and given him an uneasy feeling. Our sanatorium is higher up than the village, as you see, went on Joachim. Fifty meters higher. In the prospectus it says a hundred, but... It is really only fifty. The highest of the sanatoriums is the Schatzalp. You can't see it from here. They have to bring their bodies down on bobsleds in the winter because the roads are blocked. Their bodies? Oh, I see. Imagine, said Hans Kastorp. And suddenly he burst out laughing, a violent, irrepressible laugh, which shook him all over and distorted his face, that was stiff with the cold wind, until it almost hurt. On bobsleds, and you can tell it me just like that, in cold blood, 
You've certainly got pretty cynical in these five months. Not at all, answered Joachim, shrugging again. Why not? It's all the same to them, isn't it? But maybe we do get cynical up here. Behrens is a cynic himself, but he's a great old bird after all. An old corpse student. He is a brilliant operator, they say. You will like him. Krakowski is the assistant. Devilishly clever article. They mention his activities especially in the prospectus. He psychoanalyzes the patients. He what? Psychoanalyzes? How disgusting, cried Hans Kastorp. And now his hilarity altogether got the better of him. He could not stop. The psychoanalysis had been the finishing touch. He laughed so hard that the tears ran down his cheeks. He put up his hands to his face and rocked with laughter. Joachim laughed just as heartily. It seemed to do him good. And thus, in great good spirits, the young people climbed out of the wagon, which had slowly mounted the steep, winding drive and deposited them before the portal of the International Sanatorium, Berghoff. On their right, as they entered, between the main door and the inner one, was the porter's lodge. An official of the French type, in the gray livery of the man at the station, was sitting at the telephone, reading the newspaper. He came out and led them through the well-lighted halls, on the left of which lay the reception rooms. Hans Castor peered in as he passed, but they were empty. Where, then, were the guests? he asked, and his cousin answered. In the rest cure. I had leave tonight to go out and meet you. Otherwise... I am always up in my balcony after supper. Hans Gustorp came near bursting out again. What? You lie out on your balcony at night, in the damp? He asked, his voice shaking. Yes, that is the rule. From eight to ten. But come and see your room now and get a wash. They entered the lift. It was an electric one, worked by the Frenchman. As they went up, Hans Gustorp wiped his eyes. I'm perfectly worn out with laughing, he said, and breathed through his mouth. You've told me such a lot of crazy stuff. That about the psychoanalysis was the last straw. 
I suppose I am a bit relaxed from the journey, and my feet are cold. Are yours? But my face burns so. It is really unpleasant. Do we eat now? I feel hungry. Is the food decent up here? They went noiselessly along the cocoa matting of the narrow corridor, which was lighted by electric lights in white glass shades set in the ceiling. The walls gleamed with hard white enamel paint. They had a glimpse of a nursing sister in a white cap and eyeglasses on a cord that ran behind her ear. She had the look of a Protestant sister, that is to say, one working without a real vocation and burdened with restlessness and ennui. As they went along the corridor, Hans Kostorp saw, beside two of the white enameled numbered doors, certain curious, swollen-looking, balloon-shaped vessels with short necks. He did not think, at the moment, to ask what they were. Here you are, said Joachim. I am next to you, on the right. The other side you have a Russian couple, rather loud and offensive, but it couldn't be helped. Well, how do you like it? There were two doors, an outer and an inner, with clothes hooks in the space between. Joachim had turned on the ceiling light, and its vibrating brilliance the room looked restful and cheery, with practical white furniture, white washable walls, clean linoleum, and white linen curtains gaily embroidered in a modern taste. The door stood open. One saw the light of the valley and her distant dance music. The good Joachim had put a vase of flowers on the chest of drawers, a few bluebells and some yarrow, which he had found himself among the second crop of grass on the slopes. Awfully decent of you said Hans Kastorp. What a nice room. I can spend a couple of weeks here with pleasure. An American woman died here a day before yesterday, said Joachim. Barons told me directly that she could be out before you came. And you might have the room. Her fiancé was with her, an English officer of marines. But he didn't behave very well. He kept coming out into the corridor to cry, just like a little boy. He rubbed cold cream on his cheeks because he was close-shaven and the tears smarted. Night before last, she had two first-class hemorrhages. That was the finish. But she has been gone since yesterday morning. And after they took her away, of course, they fumigated the room thoroughly with formalin, which is the proper thing to do in such cases. Hans Kastorp took in this information with a sprightly, yet half-distraught air. 
He was standing with his sleeves pushed back before the roomy wash hand basin, the taps of which shone in the electric light. And he gave hardly a glance at the white metal bed with its fresh coverlet. Fumigated it. Eh, that's ripping, he said loquaciously and rather absurdly as he washed and dried his hands. Methyl aldehyde, yes, that's too much for the bacteria, no matter how strong they are. But it's a powerful stench. Of course, perfect sanitation is absolutely essential. He spoke with more of a Hamburg accent than his cousin, who had broken himself of it since his student days. Hans Kastorp continued volubly, but what I was about to say was, probably the officer of Marines used a safety razor. One makes oneself sore with those things easier than with a well-sharpened blade, at least. That is my experience, and I use them both by turns. Well, and salt water would naturally make a tender skin smart. So he got in the way, in the service, of rubbing in cold cream. I don't see anything strange about that. He rattled on. Said that he had two hundred Maria Mincini's, his cigar, in his trunk. The customs officers had been very courteous, and gave his cousin greetings from various people at home. Don't they heat the rooms here? He broke off to inquire, and ran to put his hands on the radiator. No, they keep us pretty cool, answered Joachim. The weather would have to be different from this before they put on the heat in August. August? August? said Hans Gustorp. But I am cold. Abominably cold. I mean in my body. For my face burns shockingly. Just feel it. This demand was entirely foreign to the young man's nature so much so that he himself was disagreeably impressed as he heard himself make it. Joachim did not take up the offer, but merely said, That is the air. It doesn't mean anything. Barons himself is purple in the face all day long. Some people never get used to it. Come along now. Do. We shan't get anything to eat. Outside, they saw the nursing sister again, peering short-sightedly and inquisitively after them. But in the first story, Hans Kastorp suddenly stopped, rooted to the spot by a perfectly ghastly sound coming from a little distance off round a bend in the corridor. It was not a loud sound, but so distinctly horrible that Hans Gustorf made a wry face and looked wide-eyed at his cousin. 
It was coughing. Obviously, a man coughing. But coughing like to no other Hans Gestorp had ever heard, and compared with which any other had been a magnificent and healthy manifestation of life. A coughing that had no conviction and gave no relief, that did not even come out in paroxysms, but was just a feeble, dreadful welling up of the juices of organic dissolution. Yes, said Joachim, that's a bad case. An Austrian aristocrat, you know, very elegant. He's a born horseman, a gentleman rider. And now he's come to this, but he still gets about. As they went, Hans Kastorp discoursed earnestly upon the gentleman rider's cough. You must realize, he said, that I've never heard anything like it before. It is entirely new to me. Naturally, it makes a great impression. There are different kinds of cough, dry and loose, and people always say the loose one is better than the other, the barking kind. When I had a croup, in my youth, he actually said, in my youth, I bayed like a wolf. And I can still remember how glad everybody was when it got looser. But a cough like this, I didn't know there was such a cough. It isn't a human cough at all. It isn't dry, and yet it isn't loose, either. That is very far from being the right word for it. It is just as if one could look right into him when he coughs, and see what it looks like. All slime and mucus. Said Joachim. I hear it every day. You don't need to describe it to me. But Hans Kastorp could not get over the coughing he had heard. He kept repeating that he could see right into the gentleman rider's vitals. When they reached the restaurant, his travel-weary eyes had an excited glitter. And with that, cherished listeners and dearest friends, farewell. <laughs>